Wow. I had no idea because it was back in the day they didn't tell us anything about anybody in our family. You didn't talk about it. Yeah. Very interesting. That is a, a real shocker. A real shocker. And, Can you uh, believe uh, um, all this time later I have never had any clue? I, I can't. I mean, that's, I mean, I can. I mean, that's, you know, families keep secrets, but, um, yeah. Wow. That was Jennifer Nuss. She didn't know the man she called Uncle Ralphie was a killer who confessed to two murders more than 50 years ago. It started in October 1966, when 17-year-old Arlen Withrow disappeared from his Ypsilanti township home. A few days later, pheasant hunters found his dead, naked body in a shallow creek 90 miles away. Jennifer's uncle, Ralph Nuss, was known to have a strong sexual penchant for teenage boys. He later confessed to Withrow's murder, along with the second slain. So how did the confessed killer get set free? Jennifer said her uncle Ralphie lived out his days working at a pretzel factory in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, taking care of his mother. Did he ever succumb to his temptation to kill for sexual release again? Welcome to Michigan Crime Stories. Michigan Crime Stories is a podcast that explores murder, mysteries, and mayhem in the Mitten State. Criminal behavior has always enthralled us. It's when societies determine what is and isn't allowed. We assume heinous crimes are committed by monsters, individuals we dehumanize in an effort to make sense of their deeds. Their victims sometimes seem distant, just faded names in a passing headline. But the terrifying truth is that crimes are committed by ordinary people just like you and me. And many of those crimes happen right in our own backyard. My name is Darcy Moran. And this is John Counts. We're reporters for MLive.com and your hosts for Michigan Crime Stories. This episode is titled, The Killer Who Slipped Through the Cracks. Like a lot of southeastern Michigan in 1966, Ypsilanti Township was thriving due to a healthy auto industry. The Withrows moved there from West Virginia to work in the Rawsonville Ford plant. Arlen Withrow's sister, Catherine White, recalls an idyllic baby boomer childhood where kids could play safely outside. In the old days, there was um, Willow Round is what it was, and there was the old neighborhood, the flat top housing and stuff that they housed all the military in when they came back, and then they built a, a newer version, <laughs> and basically that was it. It was just a everyday neighborhood, little box houses. It was just, uh, we just did kid things. It was the 60s, you know? It, it wasn't like it is in today's time. We just were always outside. You know, always with other kids. It was uh, just a fun time. Kind of an innocent time. Arlen Withrow was a popular guy in the neighborhood. Funny, outgoing. By the time he was 17, he dropped out of Willow Run High School, lied about his age to get a job at the Ford plant, where he worked long enough to afford a brand new car. He'd taken his girlfriend out to a movie in the new car the night of October 16, 1966. When he got home around 11 p.m., he parked in the driveway behind his parents' car at their house on Hunter Avenue. His mother asked him to go out and move the car into the street. Arlen did so. He was never heard from again. Fifty years later, Arlen's sister Catherine White is still despondent about her brother's death. White now lives with her husband near Brooklyn in Jackson County, where the couple used to run a local restaurant. 
She still has the last picture ever taken of her brother, found on his camera after he was murdered. The picture says it was developed in December 1966, two months after Arlen was killed. He's seen sitting in front of a large old television set, flashing a smile. White believes that much of the reporting about her brother's murder seemed to insinuate that, like the killer Nuss, her brother Arland was gay. But White maintains Arland was not gay, that he had a girlfriend and he was considering marriage in the future. She believes Arland got into a car with Nuss that night because he thought the older man was going to take Arland and another boy to a party and perhaps buy them beer. First and foremost, like I say, my brother was not gay. If he was, it would have been fine with me, you know? I have nothing wrong with him, but he wasn't. He was a, a kid who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, period. White says Arlen knew Nuss from a local teen hangout in Ypsilanti called The Stomp. Nuss, a 30-year-old prison administrator, used to go there looking for teenage boys to seduce. He sometimes used the alias Ken Nichols when trolling for sex. White said Nuss had befriended her brother and many other boys in the neighborhood. She contends her brother was just looking to party and wasn't looking for a relationship with Nuss. On October 20th, four days after Withrow had gone missing, four pheasant hunters were tramping along a lonely stretch of Webb Road in St. Clair County when they made a startling discovery. According to a report in the Ann Arbor News, one of the hunters glanced off the railing of a bridge over the Pine River and saw the body of a naked young man. There was rope tied around his neck and ankle. Authorities later found a bullet hole in the boy's forehead and determined the killer had dipped his fingers in some type of acid to eliminate fingerprints. The coroner estimated the boy died of strangulation within 24 hours of discovery. There was nothing on the body to identify it. Arlen Withrow's body sat unclaimed for three days. Meanwhile, back in Ypsilanti, police launched a frantic investigation into Arlen's disappearance. One of the detectives, Chester A. Wilson of the Washtenaw County Sheriff's Office, was a Withrow family friend. He would drive with Arlen's father out to Port Huron to identify the body. And then uh, we seen an article in the paper about a young man in Port Huron being found. And uh, Chester Wilson called my dad and said we should go up there. And my, my dad went up there, my dad my uncle. And... Uh, he was, my brother was in the middle of an autopsy. Detectives interviewed Withrow's friends and former classmates at Willow Run High School. The investigation led them to Ken Nichols, a 30-year-old man whose real name was Ralph Nuss, a man who, quote, prowled the Washtenaw County area at night, many times in the company of young men, unquote. Police arrested Nuss and held him on a charge of gross indecency involving another Ypsilanti area boy. Once in custody, Nuss didn't trust detectives from the sheriff's office and specifically requested an FBI agent he knew from working at the federal prison. Once the agent arrived, Nuss confessed to not one but two murders, one of which was unknown to police. Nuss admitted he picked up Withrow from the teen's house, then drove him to a room Nuss rented where Nuss bound and gagged the teen. Nuss said he drove to a deserted area south of the Milan Federal Prison where the murder took place. Remember this. The fact that Nuss initially claims he strangled Withrow on federal property will be significant later in this story. Nuss then told police he drove to Port Huron and dumped the body, called into work the next day, and fled to Europe. When he returned, Nuss said he killed again, this time a 19-year-old Canadian man he picked up on a street corner in downtown Detroit named Thomas Brown. 
Police said that Nuss brought the 19-year-old back to his house and shot him in the head when the teen resisted. Nuss told police he dumped the body in a creek near Heartland. Officials assumed they had an open and shut case with the confessions. So who was Ralph Nuss? For weeks and months following his arrest, a portrait of a killer emerged. On the surface, the balding 30-year-old Pennsylvania native was a respected employee of the federal government. Co-workers described him as, quote, an affable, pleasant young man, unquote. The warden of the Milan Federal Prison, where he was in charge of the work release program, described Nuss as, quote, an excellent employee, a conscientious man, unquote. This stands in stark contrast to the man doctors later described as deriving sexual pleasure from murder. An inmate at the prison interviewed by an Ann Arbor news reporter had a different take on Nuss. The inmate said, quote, he was a loner. No one really knew the man. He never confided in anyone. I doubt if he ever had a close friend. He had charm, but he could be rotten, too, unquote. Nuss appeared to be an all-American Catholic boy who was doing well for himself. He was born in Lansdale, Pennsylvania about 28 miles northwest from Philadelphia. As a teenager, he studied briefly to be a priest. He eventually earned an undergraduate degree from LaSalle University and a master's degree from Notre Dame. Nuss also found time for a two-year stint in the Army. He worked for the federal prison system in Terre Haute, Indiana, and Washington, D.C., before being transferred to Milan in 1965. He rented a room from an elderly woman inside a ramshackle house on Tuttle Hill Road in Augusta Township, where both murders likely took place. He'd been in Michigan just 18 months before the murders. It was only later that psychiatrists and attorneys pulled back the veil to reveal the dark parts of Ralph Nuss. He told doctors that he was first abused at the age of 7 or 8 when he was tied up by older boys. Doctors discovered he'd been kicked out of seminary school in his mid-teens for, quote, homosexual acts, unquote. Of course, this was in an era when it was considered immoral and taboo to merely be gay in America, a notion that still persists in the Catholic Church. But getting kicked out of seminary school didn't just seem to be another sign of the intolerant times. News reports say Nuss was kicked out for tying up two other seminary students. Nuss had similar experiences while in the Army from 1960 to 1962, according to doctors who interviewed him. The interviews revealed Nuss never formed any close connections with the men he was involved with. Once Nuss realized he could be executed for committing a murder on federal property, he changed his story. He said he killed Withrow at his boarding house. But officials were more concerned with the Brown case, which had been charged in the state courts by the Washtenaw County Prosecutor's Office. Nuss was evaluated and eventually declared a criminal sexual psychopath. He was sent to the Ionia State Prison for the Criminally Insane, where he remained until being moved to Ypsilanti State Hospital. In July 1973, Nuss was released from the hospital on convalescent leave. Medical officials basically declared he was cured. This is the same man who, eight years earlier, was said to have no remorse for killing Withrow and Brown. One doctor even said Nuss, quote, might kill again, unquote. Regardless, Nuss was set free from the mental hospital. He lived in nearby Belleville and got a job fixing vending machines at Ypsilanti State Hospital where he'd been a patient. Then almost eight years after the murders, Nuss was arrested and charged in Withrow's case. A long, complicated legal battle commenced. Nuss took up residence in the Washtenaw County Jail for four years, the longest anyone had spent in a county jail at that time. His former prison experience came in handy. Nuss was soon running the jail, according to a news report. 
and thus started off by presiding over the jail laundry and soon became the de facto jail administrator. The sheriff at the time, Tom Minnick, allegedly told other officials that Nuss was, quote, the best administrator I ever had, unquote, and that he'd like to hire him. But alas, freedom was the confessed killer's destiny. In those four years, his case wended through the local courts, then up to the Court of Appeals, and all the way up to the Michigan Supreme Court. In 1979, the Supreme Court ruled 7-0 that prosecutors could not put Nuss back on trial. Brown's case was already resolved due to the mental health commitment under the now-repealed criminal sexual psychopath law. In Withrow's case, too much time had elapsed. Eight years did not constitute a speedy trial in the eyes of the justices. The case incensed prosecutors and legislators and led to changes in state law at the time. Not yet 40 years old, Nuss was set free, no strings attached. News reports chronicling the story stop around 1979. Nuss vanished from public sight. The confessed killer had slipped through the cracks. So how did Nuss live out his days? Where did he go? What did he do? And the question on everyone's mind is probably, did he ever kill again? I went through public records and found a phone number for Nuss in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, the town where he was born. The records didn't indicate whether he was living or dead. I did the math. If he was 30 years old in 1966 when he killed the two teens, he'd be 82 now. That's a perfectly easy age to live to these days. So while dialing the number, I thought I might get a killer on the other end. I didn't. Instead, I reached one of his nieces, Jennifer Nuss, who told me her uncle died of cancer in 1996. Jennifer revealed to me that, shockingly, she and her family never knew the man she called Uncle Ralphie was a confessed murderer in Michigan. I was the first to break the news to her. So tell me okay. what, you, what, what you knew about him. Uh, all, I, all I knew was he spent some time, he lived in Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, most of what I know of him and uh, there was some problem, and he came back here, came back home just to, you know, get away from whatever it was. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, he was just my Uncle Ralphie. And what did what did he do when he moved back to Pennsylvania? He um he had a couple jobs. He worked in a pretzel factory. Was one of because I remember as a teenager coming in on you know playing out in the snow and having hot chocolate and pretzels that Uncle Ralphie had brought for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he was very simple, led a very simple life. He just came over on Sundays with my grandmother for dinner. He taught me how to drive. And that was about it. Nothing exciting. So I didn't know he had a story. Mm-hmm. And what, uh, did he, did he ever get in any trouble out there? Or? No. And very, like I said, it was very quiet, simple life. He took care of my grandmother. He worked. He just came by on Sundays for family dinners. And like I said, he taught me how to drive. We didn't know a lot about him. Mm-hmm. He was just a quiet person. He just took care of my grandmother and uh, worked. 
hung out with family, and that was about it. Mm-hmm. And he lived by himself that whole time? We lived with my grandmother. Okay. He took very good care of her. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to tell you what he was accused of uh, here? Um, back in 1966, he was uh, he confessed to murdering two teenage boys. <gasps> wow. I had no idea. After she had time to reflect on what I'd told her, Jennifer sent me this email. Quote, I'm not an expert on humans, and I do not begin to understand why human beings do the things they do to each other. It was probably kept from me, so that I wouldn't be afraid. He was still a brother, an uncle, a son, a life. And when you have to live a life and move forward, people do not mention the sin every day. My uncle Ralph taught me how to drive. He was a hard worker. He was at all the family dinners, holidays, weddings, graduations. He was a life within a community and a family. Nothing we could talk about would change the past or add to it. What was done was tragic. I am shocked to learn of my uncle's past, but what the purpose of this knowledge is to me now, I could not understand. It really has little bearing on who I am as a person or what my life is today, unquote. Withrow's sister, Catherine White, said her family has never gotten over their loss and feels justice has not been served. Of course it wasn't. No, it was was just a botched from the beginning, you know, I can't believe someone who confesses to one leads you to a body of another, but leads you to a body and the guy just goes free. I, I, I don't get that. I just, I don't get it at all. He committed more murders I do. after he was... I don't, no one is, you don't take someone that evil, and to me that's evil. They can call him a criminal sexual psychopath, they can call him whatever they want. The man is just evil. He's a bad seed. <laughs> it's a, and you don't take that and cure it in, in a couple of years and say you're, you're all better now. I think he did it again. I certainly do. You know, maybe more than once. I think he did. And he could have done more then. I don't know. You know, he was on a roll. The most haunting question that remains is, did Nuss ever kill again? I checked with the Pennsylvania State Police. A trooper there told me that the time Nuss was in Pennsylvania, roughly 1980 to 1996, was so long ago that it would be difficult to determine if Nuss was ever investigated for any crimes in that time. And Nuss died so long ago that unless he had a pending charge or conviction, he wouldn't show up in the system. I sent the trooper Nuss's name to run through that system and never heard back. I also sent an email to Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers, which monitors and seeks tips for cold cases. They did not respond to the email. So we may never know if Nuss did succumb to his urges again. If you know of any tips, please pass them along to me at johncounts at mlive.com. That's J-O-H-N-C-O-U-N-T-S at mlive, M-L-I-V-E dot com. And I will make sure they get to the proper authorities. So this is Darcy Moran, and I'm sitting here with John Counts um, to talk about Ralph Nuss. Uh, Just to start out, how did you find this story, and why did you want to revisit it? Well, I was digging through our archives, uh, which most are over at the Ann Arbor Public Library, and they have a pretty good website where you can uh, just pull up a lot of the old stories right online. And, you know, I had covered 
the Michigan murders, the John Norman Collins um, uh, co-ed murders from the 1960s. I had written like a couple pieces about that in the last couple of years. And that time era has always been, been interesting to me. And I stumbled upon these other murders, which happened a few years before the Michigan murders. And uh, at first, you know, there's just some reporting about some um, bodies being found and this, this gentleman being arrested. And the more I kept reading about it over the years of coverage, it led up to this moment where he was set free, which was just astonishing to me. Uh, you, you mentioned there, you kind of pose the question that is likely on any listener's mind at the end of whether or not Ralph Nuss may have killed again, um, you know, after he left Michigan. And uh, I, I'm just curious your thoughts and whether or not you came across absolutely anything that would indicate that he did kill again. So I reached out to some authorities in Pennsylvania, and this is a tricky one because it is so old. And the state police there essentially told me that unless he had been convicted or was under investigation for anything, then even if he was under investigation for anything, that wouldn't necessarily leave a paper trail. So we'll probably never know if he had ever killed again. And, you know, it raises some interesting questions about the criminal justice system in that can people with who are found mentally incompetent or a criminal sexual psychopath or any other variation on the on just being found guilty and sent to prison, can those people be cured and should they be sent back into society? And in Ralph Nuss's case, the doctors said that he was cured and whether he was or not, I have no idea. And I don't know you know, it raises some philosophical issues within the criminal justice world of whether these people can be cured or not. Well, it's a very interesting story. Thank you so much. I'm Darcy Moran. And this has been John Counts. And we are Michigan Crime Stories. Thanks for listening to this episode of Michigan Crime Stories. I'd like to thank both Catherine White and Jennifer Nuss for their time and interviews. This has been John Counts. Stay tuned for more episodes of Murder, Mysteries, and Mayhem in the Mitten.